Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talkie bit. (laughs) As I've been doing these past few weeks with this series, I want to begin with a bit of a review, and in particular I want to circle back to the National Library of Medicine's list of the features of compassion. And I have mixed feelings about this choice. Um, I've made it, and I will follow through on it, but here's here's the mixture. On the one hand, I think that these five elements compiled by this study are sound ones. They, I feel like they capture many of the features of compassion in a concise way and in ways that are memorable, and I think that's important. Again, language is how we make meaning, and so when we have things that are concise and memorable, they help us carry meaning into our lives. So I think in that regard, they do a good job. And on the other hand, I feel like this list itself comes from a process that privileges logic and reason in ways that are often applied to the human experience in the realm of Western medicine. That's pretty broad, and it's not a bad thing. We've all benefited a great deal by the application of our Western understanding of science to the human person. Lots has been learned. Much will continue to be learned. I can't even imagine life in a society without many of those benefits that we take for granted. We know that when they are stretched, even when they're not gone, but when they're stretched and taxed, we observe that as a collective society as a problem, right? The emergency rooms aren't keeping up, whatever the symptom is. We're like, yeah, we, we, this, is, this is a powerful, important stuff. However, it is not the only way to look at or think about something that is as universal as compassion. So here is, if you will, Western medicine bringing its skill set to the definition of compassion, in a way that I believe can be helpful and also is incomplete. And so I think that intersection is just an important one to acknowledge any time we're talking about something that we believe is bigger than a particular culture's expression or experience of it that is common to humanity, like compassion. So perhaps I should say that I share these with that caveat in mind, that these represent a potentially helpful place to begin, but I would say not a suitable place to end the exploration of compassion. After all, uh, if it's nuance that we're after, then more perspectives might serve us better. So with that in mind, here are those five elements that the NLM used to define compassion. Compassion is recognizing suffering. Compassion is understanding the universality of suffering in human experience. Compassion is feeling moved by the person's suffering and emotionally connecting with their distress. Compassion is tolerating uncomfortable feelings aroused, example, fear, distress, so that we remain open and accepting of the person's suffering, and finally, acting or being motivated to act to alleviate suffering. So those are the five elements that they kind of gathered together out of this wide-ranging study and said, these capture a definition of compassion. Now, 
One of the risks inherent in exploring something like compassion, or any idea, really, is that we can end up sort of standing back from it so far that we forget that what we're exploring is, in the end, really about action. Compassion, by definition, moves our bodies into action in response to suffering. And if we think about those five elements in that NLM definition, we can see that they all start with with action words, with things to do. Recognizing, understanding, feeling, tolerating, accepting, acting. Acting is just flat out, you know, there's no ambiguity left. (laughs) Action. And that is the nature of compassion in general, and even more so the nature of what we've been calling fierce compassion. Last week, we ended up exploring the idea of seeing both ourselves and others as fully human, which we understood as meaning that we are both the mayfly and the bird that swoops down to eat the mayfly, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggests in the poem that I shared. And in the universality of human suffering, we have the capacity to care for those who are suffering, to be the ones suffering, and to be those who cause suffering. Sort of all facets of suffering are things that we embody, and It sometimes feels to me as though that lesson of our interconnectedness in these things is one that we have to keep on learning. We keep drifting into the illusion that our actions are only our own and that they have nothing to do with anyone but ourselves. That is probably one of the most dangerous fallacies that a culture of radical individualism can perpetuate, that this action, whatever it is, uh, doesn't hurt anyone. This is just about me. Um, that idea is impossible to support if we believe we're actually interconnected, right? But it's not an uncommon one. I feel like if we haven't learned anything else from these past few years, perhaps we can take away a giant object lesson in the material fact that nothing happens in isolation, that even something so literally small as a virus can call out both the reality of shared suffering and the beauty of working together to solve problems and to make one another's lived experiences better than they might otherwise be. To carry us a little bit further down the path of considering our interconnectedness, I want to spend a few moments talking about kindness. And I don't know if you would share this observation with me or not, but uh, and it's entirely experiential, um, but I feel like I have noticed that be kind is gaining traction as sort of part of the zeitgeist these days. And that's an interesting word to me, zeitgeist. By definition, it means the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. And by saying that I think kindness is gaining traction in the zeitgeist or the spirit of this age, I don't mean that it's ruling the day. If you poke around in the history of the word zeitgeist a bit, you quickly see that it's got this spiritual sense about it. It's the spirit of the age, for instance, uh, even as defined within the careful confines of the dictionary. That's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a definition that somebody came up with in a spirituality workshop. That's just Merriam-Webster, <laughs> you know, like a pretty conservative institution in terms of the way it's working with language. Now... How might we quantify how important an idea like kindness is in the mix of a diversity of cultures or the spirit of a particular age? That's pretty hard to do. And personally, what I'm experiencing is that I'm having more and more conversations with people who, when they're presented with a difficult cultural problem, suggest to me that the solution is just be kind. Now, that is not a new idea, of course, Um, Within the history of religious cultures, most of us know best or have been exposed to the most in this community. The ancient Hebrews had this concept of hesed, uh, 
um, uh, which I'm anglicizing quite a bit even in pronunciation. If I was going to get a little closer to the Hebrew, it would be more like chesed. Um, But the word doesn't translate precisely into a single English word. But what it comes closest to is something like giving oneself fully with love and compassion. It usually gets translated in English versions of texts that use that word as loving kindness, which is not that hard to see linguistically as a, a near cousin for sure of compassion. So if you follow that thread of hesed and you follow it into the Judeo-Christian tradition, you end up with some very explicit teachings on being kind to one another. However, there is an interesting complicating factor in the contexts of many of those texts, which is that they are written for those who share a system of belief. In other words, many of those texts are offered as directive, be kind, might be the nugget of them, but only when applied to religious insiders. So something more along the lines of be kind to your fellow believers. It's not a bad idea, of course, being kind to those who think like me or believe like me, but it's also very vulnerable to seeing those not like me or mine as definitionally worthy of my judgment or even, as we considered last week, my vilification. Does that make sense? I kind of feel like I moved through a pretty if-then series that had some big steps in it right there. Um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this point, but it's not that hard to see how that kind of a perspective grows quite naturally within systems that are, in the case of the history of the Hebrew people, designed from the outset to bolster a sense of tribal or national identity for a beleaguered minority group. Of course, a a group like that, under such circumstances, would make systems that look inward and reinforce identity. When you feel like everything around you is assailing your identity, that needs to be dealt with. Now, it's interesting to me that this is also true for the early Christian teachings. It's, uh, It's easy and sometimes convenient to forget that early Christians were basically an aberrant cult within Judaism. That's how Christianity started. They were followers of a failed revolutionary rabbi who didn't survive to see the impact of his own teachings. And they were an offshoot that took a century or so to decide if it was, in fact, Jewish or not Jewish. <laughs> and that was a, that's a, quite a catfight. You start studying that history, I'm telling you. That, that was messy, messy business. And while that was in process, a lot of what ended up being considered sacred text in the Christian tradition got either written, codified, or judged to be authoritative with texts from the same period that challenged those agreed-upon perspectives being dismissed or even being physically destroyed as a hazard to this nascent movement. That's not unusual. Like, that's not unique to the history of Christianity. But I feel like in Western Christian practice, it's often uniquely ignored. (laughs) It's just like, hey, we're not going to talk about that. Um, which is sort of the same spirit in which things that challenged the, the dominant collection were dealt with. We're not going to have those. They're going to make this more complicated. We're going to just get rid of those one way or another. They're not going to be part of the authorized collection. And it's the work of a lifetime to talk about what the wider criteria were for what did get included. Um, and there were other criteria. It wasn't a random process entirely. But it definitely had some power play Uh, in it, some politics in it, and some um, individual personalities that were pretty significant to those things. 
So that spirit of be kind to your own, but leery of everyone else, is kind of baked right in to both those traditions. And that is noteworthily different, I would say, from what I feel like is emerging as the world shrinks and operates more and more like one village. In my experience, that be kind to your own but leery of everyone else, it's not what the kids mean when they say be kind. What they mean often feels closer to what the Dalai Lama means when he says be kind whenever possible and it is always possible. That quote is the tip of an iceberg in terms of collected teachings and it points to a deep and wide collection of considerable duration uh, that reflects the teachings on kindness that emphasize our common humanity. Uh, The word kindness itself contains a kind of a built-in clue about what the word really means because the root of the word kindness is kin, kindness. And we don't use that word, kin, as much as we used to, but most of us still recognizing it as having something to do with family. When somebody says kin, that's what we tend to kind of go toward. And the first definition of the word kin in most English dictionaries is something along the lines of a group of persons with common ancestry. That's a, that's a pretty good definition of human, don't you think? And it doesn't really matter what your preferred origin story is. We have, whatever your origin story is of choice, we have that in common. We're kin. Full stop. And when we behave toward one another in ways that are kind, we are enacting kindness. We're enacting common humanness. Kindness is made visible when we protect or provide for or show care to or even when we motivate others. The opposite of that, and today's far enemy of compassion, is hostility. I find it helpful to think of this relative to the notion of demonizing that we touched on last week. We could think of demonizing, I think correctly, as a combination of othering and hostility. The othering, you're not like me, is what creates the space in which we give ourselves permission to think of our beliefs or positions or self as superior to someone else. And this way of thinking, which immediately starts to create a disconnect between us and others, makes it easier to justify hostility because we just made space for it. History at large, I think, as well as our own lived experience, provides us with pretty much endless illustrations of where this path leads. It offers a pretty decent working understanding, for example, of how we get things like genocides, uh, as well as providing some insight into, for instance, this thorny question of how a religion that insists that God is love could also justify and perpetuate something like a residential school system. It's the othering that makes space for that hostility. So here's a bit of a dilemma, because we needed another one. (laughs) Fierce compassion sometimes requires things like clearly articulating wrongdoing or setting safe boundaries. It includes saying no in an undeniable and non-negotiable way to what is wrong or harmful. That's that's an important aspect of the enactment of fierce compassion. So how can we do that without developing a hostile attitude? And to explore this, I think we need to circle back to anger for a moment. 
Anger is a natural human emotion. We need it to survive. It's an emotion that signals that we or someone else is either in physical or emotional danger or we perceive ourselves or someone else to be in physical or emotional danger. That's, for example, why people on opposite sides of a debate often feel angry because they're experiencing the other position as a threat. Anger is also the emotion most often associated with hostility. So, how can we practice fierce compassion, which is sometimes necessary, without exchanging our compassion for hostility? And, and here is something that I find to be an accessible way to tell if my anger or if our anger is likely to be put to compassionate use or likely to cross over the line into hostility. It's, it's a question. It's short enough to fit on the back of a business card, so it's carryable in terms of the language. One way I think that we can tell if our anger is likely to be put to compassionate use or to cross the line into hostility is to ask ourselves the question, am I angry at injustice or do I feel hostile toward a person? Am I angry at injustice or do I feel hostile toward a person? Compassionate action, no matter how fierce it is, focuses on the problem and spares the person. Now, there's no question that that is a complicated and deeply challenging idea to even consider, never mind to practice. And that's one of the reasons why it came with so much preamble in this talkie bit. It's so big that it's almost like we have to sneak up on it because if we see that idea coming, we might try to dodge out of the way. And there are so many ways to try to dodge this. Um, if you want to explore this for yourself, one entry point can be simply asking if you've ever needed to reconsider an idea that diminished someone else's value based on ideas like race or ethnicity or capacity to learn or move through the world in particular ways or even someone's socioeconomic status. Like at those intersections, we often encounter a lived experience of that question. I read an article this past week about a social worker that was convicted in July of defrauding the youth they were responsible for of almost a half a million dollars and behaving in ways that the presiding judge in the case called, quote, acting contrary to the best interests of the youth in his care, close quote, resulting in their, quote, material and sometimes emotional deprivation, close quote. And when the court asked this person why he did it, he told them that he viewed his work as a social worker as an exercise in futility. Extended quote from this journalistic piece, quote, he blamed the kids for their own outcomes, citing their lifestyles of addiction and criminal behavior. He also blamed holes in the province's social work system for the fact that he was able to defraud it, and even pointed a finger at his superiors for not catching him in the act sooner. He said, I know, he said that a kid who didn't have a home didn't need government money. He didn't think they could be trusted to spend it responsibly. Close quote. At one point in this process, someone described him as having a flexible moral compass which feels to me like the linguistic near cousin of alternative truth it's not really a reach to see how the first step in a journey like that could simply be regarding others as less than one's self right there's, there's vertical positioning there and not just sort of and I, I say this with some hesitation but also not just regarding oneself as 
differentiated from or superior to someone else in ways that our society might commonly use as a measuring stick. So, for example, more educated, more wealthy, more stable socially in some way. Um, not particularly wrestling with addiction at this point in my life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not just some of those sort of things like that, but just in terms of worthiness as a human being. I think it is noteworthy that, and I couldn't prove this by study, but I think if I did study it, it would prove defensible, so I will say it uh, with that caveat. I think it's noteworthy that every enduring and widely practiced spiritual belief system somehow addresses itself to this dilemma. And it is certainly the terrain that Jesus is squarely in when he, he addresses the difference between loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, which was the law that was generated by the tribal peoples who gave us most of the content in what we now call the Old Testament if we're looking at a Christian Bible. So that teaching of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy, which Jesus differentiated by saying, if you really want to imitate the divine, what you need to do is choose to love your enemy. It's like, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, and this is, a, this is the text in Matthew, that you should love your enemy. That is an alarmingly unambiguous teaching <laughs> as we have it. It is also what the Dalai Lama is talking about when he offers a Buddhist perspective on this by saying, if we remember that others too are human beings like us, we can extend a sense of kindness even towards those we think of as enemies. And the hinge in that idea is human beings like us. It's, it's just a bit too easy to move from humans like us to humans not quite like us, to humans nothing like us, to subhumans. I don't think very many people actually do that whole thing in one step, you know? But man, that can be a subtle progression. And from there... It's a lateral move to the justification of closing the heart door of compassion and opening the floodgates of hostility. It just got easier. And what gets washed away in the deluge if we open those floodgates of hostility, among other things, is common humanity and the possibility of the sort of genuine love, kindness, and compassion that can actually make the world a better place. Some of this is remarkably pragmatic and measurable. I ran across a book uh, recently. Uh, the book is called Inspire Kindness, a very simple book, um, by two of the founders of, um, of an organization called the ROI of Kindness. And for those of you who don't hang around capitalists all the time, ROI is return on investment. Here's a fact from that book. This is, this is kind of interesting. So the average annual turnover in the quick service food industry, <laughs> man, we just have a euphemism for everything. Anyway, in the quick service food industry, the, the average annual turnover is 170%. So an average company in the quick service food industry turns over 170% of its employees every year. There are two companies uh, that are cited in this study that constantly focus on kindness as what they call the magic ingredient in their corporate culture, in their organizational culture. They emphasize kindness as a pillar of the way they operate. Those two companies, on average, turn over 14% and 20%, 24% of their staff. 
In other words, those two companies retain their employees eight to ten times more than their competitors. If you needed an argument you could take to the bank for kindness, literally, there it is. This, this is not, uh, and a big quotes around just for me, this is not just an idea. And, uh, you know, there's ways, to, there's ways to kind of put it into action and go, huh, look at that. Ancient wisdom, once again. Uh, once again, social science proves the obvious. You know, this works. So maybe these folks that I've been talking to who keep saying things like, just be kind, which occasionally rankles for me. It feels simplistic. Maybe they're right. Maybe what we need is a revolution fueled by fierce compassion, one that insists that the most important things in this life include the acknowledgement that we're all kin and that there is no better way forward than enacting our common humanity by showing kindness to one another. Maybe they're right. It's worth exploring. Peace.